goodbyes are a hard part of life, and Renee and I have experienced goodbyes um, actually a number of times in our very short or young married life. Uh, We were married in South Carolina and uh, graduated. Renee graduated with her master's degree on Saturday. I graduated with my bachelor's degree on Saturday. We got married on Monday. Um, We're still not entirely sure what we were thinking, but hey, uh, at that point in your life, all we were, I know what we were thinking. Let's get married. That's what we were thinking. Um, not a minute longer, please. If we could have pulled it off on Saturday night, we would have done it. But we got married on Monday, and then we were gone. Within two weeks, we were in Southern California. So we said goodbye at the end of our college career to a number of our friends, to our church that we love very much, uh, where we actually worship with the Morrises. And uh, our pastor there who had mentored me and just so much of a part of our lives, we said goodbye and headed to Southern California. Several years ago, at the end of our time in Southern California, we said goodbye to Grace Church and our family down there and um, left to go to Texas. And then after a year in Dallas-Fort Worth, we said goodbye to our church family there and came to Kingsburg. And so all of those goodbyes carried with them um, a real deep sense of uh, a bittersweet nature to them. Uh, there's an aspect in which saying goodbye is painful. Uh, a lot of us try not to say goodbye, uh, but say see you later or until we s- see each other again. And um, at, at the same note or on the same note, goodbyes are also exciting. Um, if you're like us and maybe you're not, maybe you've never said goodbye and there is that likelihood you've lived in this town or in these communities around this town your whole life and really You don't even know what I'm saying. You can't even appreciate this at all. Um, You've never said goodbye to your family and and left all of that, but you have. You've said goodbye at some point, and you understand the significance of that in the moment and also the excitement of what is to come with your departure. Probably one of the most memorable times for us of saying goodbye was in Bakersfield at a restaurant where uh, some of you were there. Uh, We came in 2006 to say goodbye to you. Because we had said no to coming and being the pastor, the first pastor of Grace Church of the Valley. If you didn't know that part of the story, uh, here you do. You know now. Uh, We said goodbye at that restaurant. We took pictures. We tried to act like we were happy in the picture, you know, like because that's the rule. If you take a picture, you should look like you're happy. So we were there and we're all together as friends. But knowing that uh, the Lord was actually leading us apart. And so Renee and I headed off to Dallas after a very hard goodbye with some of you that are here this morning. Another one that was very memorable is leaving L.A. with our immediate family, including David and Kathy Morris and the couples that we had come out with from South Carolina and leaving them and saying goodbye to them all the while knowing God was taking us to something great. And he had great plans for what was ahead of us. And I kind of feel like we are at a goodbye moment this morning. Uh, And I have all the same emotion about what we're doing this morning because we're saying goodbye to the Sermon on the Mount. And to be quite frank with you, uh, I have fallen in love with the Sermon on the Mount. It has become a dear friend. Um, This sermon has come alive in these last months, in this last year. Um, I have appreciated so much more our Lord because of this time in this study And yet I look forward with anticipation to what comes in chapter eight, since we already know and you can read ahead. It's exciting what the Lord has for us. And yet today we're saying goodbye to the Sermon on the Mount. 
we're saying till we see you later. Hopefully we'll come back to the Sermon on the Mount at some point and read God's word again in this portion. But we are leaving this behind in our study and we're moving forward. And for me, at least, this is a bittersweet uh, goodbye. The sweetest goodbyes are the ones where you can look back on the experience with those that you're saying goodbye to, and you can reflect and rehearse all the things that God has done in changing you and in working in your life through that relationship. There's nothing like saying goodbye to someone who you've grown with, who you've walked in Christ with along the way. And I feel like this is a sweet goodbye, at least for my own life, and I know for many of you, because this morning we have the opportunity to reflect back to look at the whole and to rejoice in what God has done in our lives through this portion of Scripture. He's changed me forever because of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so this morning, this is a sweet goodbye. It's one that anticipates the future. It's also one that looks back on God's work. Now, this is going to be a little different than normal. This morning, we're just going to study verses 28 and 29, but we're going to use them really as an opportunity for us to reflect on what we've learned and what is true, even in preparation for our Christmas Sunday, next Lord's Day, as we gather together for worship. Matthew chapter 7 wrapped up with those four warnings, the final four warnings in verse number 13, all the way down through verse number 27. And if you've been with us, we concluded there last week looking at um, the strong uh, warning from the Lord that everyone who says the right thing or hears the right thing is not necessarily a part of his kingdom. Mere profession and mere reception do not guarantee a radical life change that is the requirement of those who are considered kingdom citizens, those who will be in heaven forever. That brought us then to verse 28 and 29, where Matthew puts his his cap on the sermon. We're back to Matthew now. We've been listening to the Lord speak directly. Now we're with Matthew giving his commentary at the very end, and if you've got your Bible open there, you can read this. It'll only take a second. Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowds were astonished at what they had just heard. And for the sake of one last stroll down memory lane... Let's go back and let's walk through, just briefly walk through what they had heard. Go back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Turn back there so that your eyes are following along. And let's remember what they had just heard on the side of the hill, on the plateau, there under the teaching of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 begins in verse 1 saying, Seeing the crowds, the masses that had gathered, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. We remember that the rabbis sat and those who heard them stood in respect or out of respect for them. This is what takes place here. Jesus sits down. The disciples come near to him and the crowds gather around behind those disciples. And Jesus opens his mouth and he begins in verse three with what is his most famous discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins by proclaiming, really declaring the character of the kingdom citizen. And we know this section of scripture as what? It's the Beatitudes. All right. It is the the section of scripture that is not commanded of us. Uh, You'll see no commands here in verses three down through verse 10. You'll simply see declarations of truth about people who are a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
And the number one central repeated theme throughout this is that Christ's people, those who are a part of the kingdom, are blessed. And they are exclusively blessed. The character of the kingdom and those who are a part of this kingdom is that it is a deeply spiritually blessed group of people. Unbelievable are the descriptions of of these people who are most blessed because it is so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. And yet the most blessed people on the face of the planet are described here in verses three through ten. Their poverty is very real. It is a poverty in spirit. They have a mourning over sin. They are meek with their attitude. They are desperate for righteousness. There is a kingdom desperation that results in their joy, their blessedness. They're merciful and compassionate. They're pure in heart. They are those who seek peace. They are peacemakers. And ultimately, they are blessed because they are the persecuted ones. This flies directly in the face of what is natural to us. Because we would believe that those who are most happy are the most rich. And those who are the most happy have the least amount of mourning. Those who are the most happy are the strongest in their attitude, most aggressive and powerful. Those who are happy have no hunger and no thirst. They are completely comfortable. Those who are most happy are those who are not merciful, but those who rule, who dominate others. Those who are happy are those who enjoy every corruption of this world. Those who are happy are those who war for their own agenda. And those who are happy are those who are at peace with as many people as possible. And Jesus just launches. Here comes the people. They sit down and he begins this sermon by saying, you want to know what my kingdom's all about? Here's the character of the kingdom citizen. They are the most blessed people on the planet, but not for the natural and normal reasons. They are blessed because they are in a right standing, a right relationship with the king. He goes on from this section to just two verses in verses 11 and 12 to talk about the response to the kingdom citizens. So the character of the kingdom citizen is outlined in verses 3 through 10. Then the world's response, the culture, the society's response to those kingdom citizens is given to us in verses 11 and 12. And it's it's not a rosy picture. Jesus would later say that they hated me and they'll they'll hate you. Rejoice and be glad when you are accused and falsely so for Christ's sake, because the reward is great in heaven. This is the response of the community, of the culture, of the society to those who are a part of the kingdom. Christ goes on then to flip that coin over and to talk about the kingdom citizens uh, impact upon the culture. So if the culture is responding in a certain way, he goes on in this Sermon on the Mount, this most famous sermon, to talk about how those kingdom citizens with that set of character traits, how they affect what's around them. And, And it's amazing because this passage in its context takes on all the more strength for us. We are to be a salt, a preservant something that holds back decay, and we are to be a light, something that gives clarity in the middle of darkness. This is the effect of the kingdom citizen on those around them. This is to be the natural result of being in the presence of a kingdom citizen, salt and light. 
We then move to Jesus introducing himself as the standard for this kingdom. He sets himself up in verses 17 through 20 as the fulfillment of all the law, as the righteous standard for his kingdom. In other words, in verses 17 through 20, Jesus outlines that what he says goes. He eliminates in verses 17 through 20 that he is a really good man who should be respected, who should be looked up to. And he elevates himself and declares himself as the fulfillment of God's righteous standard and as the king. He is the king in verses 17 through 20. And therefore, he is the standard by which all righteousness must be measured. And that is what leads him then in verse 21 all the way through verse 48 of chapter 5 to give us and boldly give us the demands of his kingdom. So if he's the standard, he doesn't leave us wondering what he wants, what he desires, what rightly reflects his character as king. He outlines it in verses 21 all the way through 48, and he gives us those bullet points of what kingdom righteousness really looks like. And if you were here for this study, this is where it becomes so evident to us. That the kingdom of Christ is all about our hearts. You see in verse 21 we begin with anger. And Jesus reveals to us that murder is found in the heart of anger. He moves forward in verse number 27. And we find that adultery is found in the heart of lust. We see that the heart is the issue. We see in verse 33 that that truth, truth exists in our speech, letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Truth flows from the heart. Our words come directly from who we truly are, as does our response to others in verse 38, whether or not we are revengeful and whether or not in verse 43 we actually love enemies has everything to do with who we are on the inside. And so Jesus sets himself up. He is the king. He is the fulfillment. He is the righteousness. And we as his subjects live in joyful submission under his demands. The one who has credited us with his righteousness at the cross. That brings us to Matthew chapter 6. And here we move from the demands of the kingdom to the danger of of the kingdom. Remember in verse 1 of chapter 6, if you have your Bible open still, let's read that together. Beware. Beware. There's a huge beware sign at the gates of the kingdom. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So, here's the great danger of the kingdom citizen on this earth before the king returns and all is set right. And here's the danger. It is hypocrisy. This is the greatest accusation of the church, right? Against the church. You have all heard someone somewhere tell you that the church is full of hypocrites. Guess what? Jesus says that's a legitimate concern. You ought to be concerned and I ought to be concerned that the righteousness that we live in response to the demands of the kingdom in chapter 5, 21 to 48 are not done for the mere pleasure and approval of other people. 
And Jesus is so kind as to give us three public illustrations of that. Giving, prayer, and fasting. Right? And that carries us through the middle of chapter 6. He says, watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for mere externalism. And let me give you some illustrations. When you give to the poor, do it in secret so that your father who's in secret can reward you eternally. When you pray, though public prayer is a part of life for the believer, pray not publicly but secretly for the approval of your father, not for the recognition of others. You remember the Pharisees? They blew their big trumpets. They made large announcements that they were about to pray. And then finally with fasting, don't come out of your house while fasting for the sake of giving your attention to God and his direction for you with your hair disheveled, with your face drawn, holding your stomach because you're so hungry. Come out cleaned up, ready to serve Christ because you're fasting in secret for the benefit of your walk with Christ and your heavenly father's eyes who also sees in secret. Danger. The danger of the kingdom is hypocrisy. Jesus moves forward then and really drops the hammer. The the vice is getting tighter and tighter on us in verse 19 of chapter 6. And in verse 19 all the way through the conclusion of chapter 6 and verse 34, Jesus gives us the perspectives of the kingdom. You remember this? This is where we first encountered that Jesus... The perspective of those who are part of the kingdom is that Jesus is exclusively sufficient for their needs. He gets from them an undying, unwavering trust. They do not live in a lifestyle of anxiousness and worry because he deserves their unwavering trust. And he deserves... Their undying loyalty to him. Every part of who they are as kingdom citizens is for the sake of him and his kingdom. They lay up treasures in heaven. They live for eternity. They live for Christ. They live for their king because they have been transformed as his kingdom citizens. And so in verses 19 through 24, we see this perspective in the treasures of life, our temporal resources And in verses 25 down through verse 34, we see this in our attitude, our worry or our lack thereof because of our undying and unwavering trust in our king to make provision for us. These are the perspectives of the kingdom that brought us to chapter seven. And now we've we've crested the hill and we're on the downhill slope to the end of the sermon. And in chapter seven, in verse one, we find the most familiar verse in all of this sermon. Judge not that you be not judged. And Jesus moves in chapter 7 from from the dangers of chapter 6 to the perspectives of the second half of chapter 6, now to the relationships of the kingdom in chapter 7. How we relate to other people in general, how we relate to the Father in prayer, and how we relate to those who would lead us astray. We find in chapter 7 the golden rule, which we rightly named for our study, the kingdom rule, because this is the capstone in verse number 12 of this entire sermon. Here is the last word from Jesus in the body of the sermon. He says in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law in the prophets. 
want to put the righteousness that is yours in Christ on display in your life. This is the kingdom principle that demands so much and cannot be faked. That brought us to the conclusion and those final four warnings. We saw a warning about the two gates. We saw a warning about the two trees, those prophets that are false. We saw a warning about two claims at the throne of judgment. And we concluded last week with two foundations upon which a house is built. The life that obeys and the life that simply hears. That is where we've been. And you, along with me, if you have been here for any part of this, can rehearse through this sermon how God has affected your worldview, how God has changed your outlook on life. The grid through which you see your existence has been changed. And that brings us to verse number 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Now, here's how we're going to wrap this up. Okay. All of that was introduction. Uh, now we can finally get started. Um, no, I'm, I'm not teasing really, but we're not going to be here for as long as you may think. All right. We're just going to look at two questions this morning. All right. First question. Why were the people astonished at the end? Why were they marveling? Maybe your translation says at the end. And second question why did Jesus teach with such authority? All right. The first question is answered for us in the text. I want to consider that for a moment. The second question really preps us for what is on us in the season that we're celebrating right now. It brings us back to the realization that Jesus was teaching with authority for a very real reason. So let's start with the first question. Why were the people astonished at the end? Verse 28 says that the crowds were marveling. They were uh, jaw dropped at the end of this teaching. It's as if they sat there and you could hear a pin drop on the side of the mountain. They were so quiet and so in awe of this teacher who stood before them or sat before them instructing them. They marveled and you can almost hear the buzz after he stops talking. I don't know how Jesus ended this. Uh, we don't have him closing in a word of prayer or having everyone uh, sing a song together or certainly didn't have an altar call that we can find here. Uh, raise your hand, come forward. We don't have any of that. Somehow, maybe just with his silence, he stopped preaching. And in the moment concluding that message, you can hear the buzz of the people looking at each other and going, something's different. This is not what we're used to. Can you believe it? And you can hear them the next day in their community. Were you there? Were you a part of the sermon yesterday up on the hill with Jesus of Nazareth? Were you there? Because it was crazy. It was unbelievable. If you missed it, you've got to check it out on YouTube. You've got to see this. That flew right over a generational gap. Boom, right over. You need to check this out. You need to hear what Jesus had to say. And it's answered for us why they were so unbelievably astonished in verse 29. Because Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now this is really important. Because understand that the Jewish culture was very familiar with teaching. Very familiar. They went to the synagogues often. 
if not daily, to hear instruction from the scrolls, to have the Old Testament scriptures read and explained to them by their scribes and religious leaders. These were not people who were marveling because they had heard teaching. And they hadn't heard good teaching in a long time. And they just thought, man, that sounds so good. They were marveling because of how the teaching was delivered. And the teaching was delivered in an opposite manner of what they were used to. And that is critical for us to understand this morning. Jesus did not teach like the scribes. You say, well, what did the scribes teach like? If you've done any interaction with Jewish literature, religious literature, you have found that in Jewish literature that deals with uh, the Old Testament especially, you can't go a word almost without some rabbi speaking to that word that was just referenced. The scribes taught with sources. And so basically the style of sermon would be, I read to you uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29. And for the next hour, you sit there while I read to you all the people I can think of. And I've referenced all week that help you understand what's going on in that text. They would quote rabbi after rabbi after rabbi to try to mount a case for why they interpreted their scriptures the way they interpreted them. And here Jesus sits down on the mountain. And can you imagine in verse 21 of chapter 5 when he begins to say, here's what you've always heard. But I say to you. You remember the weight of those statements on us because here we are on this side of the cross and we're hearing the Lord Jesus himself say, this is what I demand. I'm the king and I demand this of you. This blew them away. No scribe. No scribe said, this is what I say to you. I don't need any sources. I don't need any backup. I don't need any authority structure behind me. I don't need a banner of names that is my recommendation list. I don't need a resume. I am Jesus, the Son of God, and I speak to you as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. And they couldn't believe it. You know, in research, in graduate school, we had to do research. I was laughing with David this, David Morris this week. If you don't know, David and I come from totally different planets intellectually. All right? And I'm not on the good planet. All right? Uh, he's on the good planet. We come from totally different poles. So we go into the Kingsburg Library. We walk down to lunch and had a bowl of soup or something. And we come back and we're going to swing in the library and check out some, some articles that we, we wanted to read. So we swing in the library. And, and as I'm there, I'm smelling the library. And see, the smell of libraries to me is a very dark smell. It's a very dark smell. It's one of those smells that gives you, you know, chills. And your hair stands up on the back of your neck. And you think, I've got a research project due, Right? David, on the other hand, when he smells a library, he gets this warm glow about him and a smile comes up on his face. So we're in the library and I'm walking through and I, I walked over into the children's section because I was thinking this is really neat. I, it's a great little library, uh, just walking distance from our house. And I thought, I told David, I said, you know, we need to utilize this library as a family so that Carissa and her worldview of libraries is different than her dad's. That's what we need to do. Because all I'm thinking in a library is, I've got all these books and I'm supposed to find I'm supposed to find information about whatever topic it is that I'm supposed to be writing on. Um, 
in research, there's nothing more valuable than primary sources. And those of you who have done research projects, graduate work, you know that primary sources are what your professors are looking for. In other words, there are all kinds of books, and, and this goes on every week in my study. I read a number of commentators who help me think through the passage. But as I'm reading those commentators, and the vast majority of them are solid evangelical writers, they all eventually reference someone else. And what you can find out through the reading of a number of commentators is who actually wrote first. Because ultimately, the best, oldest commentary will keep showing up as they all quote that commentator on the text. That's the primary source. In Matthew, since you are no doubt hanging on the end of your seat waiting for this, um, it's a guy named Broadus. Everybody quotes Broadus because he was the first hard expositional commentary on the book of Matthew. And so they all go back to that primary source. Here's the point. Jesus is the primary source. The primary source. And these individuals on the side of the mountain, and I trust you and I, can be astonished at the unaffected authority that he brings to our lives in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was not a good priest He was not a good scribe. He was not a role model for the Jewish nation. He was not a super good prophet who was really skilled in teaching. He stood out from every other teacher and he must stand out to us today as the primary source. Jesus was not an expositor by trade. He was actually delivering the message because he was God himself. It is our job to respond rightly to what we find him saying here with all authority in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus' authority is a theme really throughout Matthew, really throughout all the gospel writers. They come back to this authority issue. And I wanted to show it to you just for the sake of curiosity, just one page over in chapter 8. And verse 9, hopefully this will fill out the understanding and help you think through this um, as an issue that really deserves your attention. Jesus' authority as the primary source. Um, Here's the centurion. We're going to meet him very shortly in the new year in chapter 8. Centurion comes and uh, has a servant at home who's paralyzed. And this centurion, who is a leader within the military, he gets authority. All right, so notice what he says in verse number 8. But the centurion replied, Jesus says, I'm going to come and heal this servant. And the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right? This centurion This one who had soldiers under him and who existed under the authority of another soldier totally got the picture of authority. He totally understood that if the authority figure says to the one under it, I want you to go and do this, they go and do it because they are subject to that authority. Here he paints a picture of Jesus as having all authority because he says, simply say the word from here 
and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at this. The astonishment is on the other side now. Jesus marvels in verse number 10 and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you that with no one in Israel, that is the nation of Israel, have I found such faith. He understood authority. Chapter nine. Jesus is the primary source. If you turn over to chapter nine, you'll find this same theme in verse number six. Jesus is still in his healing ministry. Verse four says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which one is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Again, the Pharisees are frustrated by Jesus. As they continue to be until they had their way. And verse six says, but that you may know that the son of man, that is me, Jesus, that you may know that the son of man, Jesus says, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. In other words, here's what happens. Jesus says, you want to see authority? You're frustrated. You're frustrated by me that I would say your sins are forgiven. You want to see forgiveness power? Get up, paralytic, and go home. Walk home. And he puts on display that he has the authority on this earth to forgive sins. Praise God. He is the primary source. He is the authority. Chapter 10 goes on with this same idea. Flip over a page to verse 1 of chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples. Jesus is going to send out the 12. And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So here, Jesus is not only seen as the authority, he actually distributes authority. It starts with him and it flows from him. He is the authority. And then flip over to chapter 21. And really, this is where the crux of the other gospel writers bring this issue to bear on us. Chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. And beginning in verse number 23. Jesus has made the triumphal entry. He comes into the temple now in verse 23. And he stands before the chief priests and the elders of Jerusalem. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? All right. Why are you saying the things you're saying? This directly relates even back to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will. I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then do you not believe me? Because John the Baptist declared that it was Jesus who was being uh, prepared. The way was being prepared for. But if we say, verse 26, from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet because these people that are following Jesus, many of them were baptized by John. And verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, if you will refuse to acknowledge what you already know to be true. Priests, elders, religious leaders of the people, I will not again confess to you that my authority comes from the father. I am one with the father, he would say in John chapter 17. And then we wrap up this authority issue in Matthew in verse 18 of chapter 28. 
where we started, actually, our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we find this authority coming to bear on his disciples and on us once again. And Jesus came to them and said in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has been raised from the dead. He has been triumphant over sin and death. He has been exalted, Philippians 2 tells us, and he is about to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will reign until his return. He says, all authority is mine. Go, therefore, because of this, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is the primary source. He taught as the primary source, and that was a marvel to those who heard him. Now, second question, and probably the most critical for our thinking this morning. First question, why were the people astonished at the end? Because Jesus taught with authority. Question number two, why did Jesus teach with such authority? Why was this true about him? The simple answer is he taught like this because he was the eternal son of God. This is why Jesus taught with authority. He owned exclusively the authority over all that he had created. He owns and has the right to all the demands of his kingdom. He is the standard. He is the fulfillment. Therefore, as the son of God, he bears this authority. Matthew's desire is to put on record in verses 28 and 29. The validity of Jesus' claim to be the promised Messiah, the son of God. The servant of God in Isaiah 42. Matthew wants us to see Christ as the promised one. He's proving that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The authority of Jesus' teaching is just one more Matthean, as the theologians would say, Matthean proof for the messianic nature of Jesus Christ. It's one more Matthew proof. I don't know how many of you have come, just out of curiosity, how many of you came after we had started? How many of you started to come after we were already in the Sermon on the Mount? How many of you have known nothing but the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, a lot of you. So many of you were not here at the front end of the book of Matthew, but this has been Matthew's consistent pattern. He is writing to a predominantly Jewish nation, predominantly Jewish readership, and he is writing for the purpose of proving that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He was the one that God promised to send to rescue his people in the line of David, the seed of Abraham. All the promises were fulfilled in Christ. This was Matthew's goal. And this comment in verse number 29, that Jesus taught with authority, is yet another one of those proofs. So here's what I thought we'd do to finish out our time. Since we're in this reviewing mood, and we've already spent a whole bulk of our time going back through the Sermon on the Mount, why don't we just go back through what we've studied to this point in Matthew? But here's, here's the angle on it. It's a little more exciting than that because I can feel the weight of your excitement about going back through this. We're going to go backwards. And we're just going to take a moment to go backwards to see the proofs that Matthew gives us, the, the validation points that Matthew gives us that Jesus, in fact, had the right to teach authoritatively because he was the promised one. He was, in fact, the Messiah. Okay? 
Let's begin in chapter 4 and verse 23. Right before the Sermon on the Mount is recorded for us, in Matthew's thematic approach to the gospel, he gives us this statement about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. I mean, this is like a long, long time ago. So even if you were here, I was here, and I don't remember exactly what we did in this passage, okay? So you can work with me through this. Verse number 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. All right, that was Matthew's um, commercial for what was to come. You've seen a commercial that says, this show will start in 30 seconds. Or this show starts now. Matthew says, here's a little synopsis. Here's a little glimpse into what's coming. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, and he was healing every kind of disease you can imagine. That was Matthew's first approach to Jesus being proved to be the promised one because of his miraculous power. Now, beginning in chapter 8, we're going to see that put on display over and over and over again. So, the first, or the last, before the Sermon on the Mount, but the first one in our review is that Jesus was healing every disease. Proof. Positive. He's the Son of God. He's the promised one, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. He's the fulfillment. Proof number two. Going back in chapter 4 to verses 1 through 11. Jesus was healing every disease. Number 2, Jesus was tempted and found innocent. You remember this? Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Who we're going to get to in just a second. If you're wondering how the Holy Spirit got there, don't worry. We're going to find out because that's another proof. Jesus is led out by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he is led out for the sole purpose of being tempted. He doesn't eat. He's at the end of himself physically, no doubt. And Satan himself arrives on the scene to bring temptation after temptation after temptation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew did not include this for you and I to have a really helpful example to follow as we fight temptation. This is not four keys for unlocking the mystery of victory over temptation. Do we receive an example? Absolutely. Do we receive the ultimate example? Absolutely. But the reason why this is included is because this is proof number two, backwards in review, that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah. He's never sinned. He's been tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin, which makes him the high priest and yet a sympathetic high priest. So Matthew says, Jesus is healing every disease, This is clearly the Messiah. Jesus is tempted by Satan and stands innocent on the word of God, stands true without sin. This is the Messiah. Number three, in chapter three, Jesus is baptized and loved by the father. Matthew couldn't get more obvious in chapter three, verses 13 through 17. Jesus comes to John. He says, baptize me. John says, I'm not baptizing you. I'm not even worthy to unlatch your shoes. Jesus says, this is the right thing. I want to identify with the people who are identifying with the coming of the kingdom because I'm their leader. I'm their king. So Jesus is baptized. And there in the Jordan River, which is really more like the Jordan Creek, Jesus is baptized and something like a dove descends from heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. 
And here is the unbelievable declaration from Matthew, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven. This is the Father speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The moral of the story is not every believer should be baptized. That's elsewhere. The moral of the story is Jesus is the Messiah. That's why this is here. He is the primary source. He is the ultimate authority. And he must be bowed before. He's the king. So he is healing every disease. He was tempted and found innocent. He was baptized and loved by the father. And empowered by the spirit. The Trinity is found there on display in Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. If we flip back to chapter 2, Jesus was protected and fulfilled the Old Testament. Now we're moving backwards in time. Here's little toddler Jesus. Little toddler Jesus is in grave danger because word has reached Herod. And Herod's not real tickled that they're saying that a king has been born in Bethlehem. You remember this account and we're going to review this next week. And so there is either they stay and Jesus is killed in his infancy, or they run. And they run, and in so running, it is constant throughout chapter 2, as the wise men come, every several verses we find this statement. Verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, this is the wise men speaking to the king, for so it is written by the prophet, and Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That's why he was in Bethlehem. They, the family, whatever the last name, the Joseph family, flees into Egypt. The Nazareth family, which is probably what they were. Joseph and his family flee into Egypt. Why? Verse 15. They remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The chapter goes on and concludes. Then Herod, in verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, Here's what he did. He became furious and he sent he killed every male child in Bethlehem. Unbelievable atrocity. He slaughters every baby that was a boy in all of Bethlehem and in all the region, two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Why then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah? And then Joseph bring his family back to Nazareth. And in verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. See, all of this is not so that we can say, oh, that's that's interesting. Look at all of the cool things that God did to preserve the life of his son, the God man, Jesus Christ. Do we find that there? Absolutely. Is that an appropriate response from us to worship God for his providence and his plan in Jesus life? Absolutely. Why is it here? Matthew put this here to say the Old Testament is talking about him. He's the Messiah. He has authority. He's sinless, though he was tempted. He's been baptized and God the Father declared him his son. He was protected by God's providence to fulfill the Old Testament because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Jesus was healing everyone and every disease. Jesus was tempted and found innocent. Jesus was baptized and loved by the Father. Jesus was protected and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Jesus was virgin born and became the God man in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. 
the virgin birth was a stamp of the promised one. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The miraculous birth of Christ is recorded by Matthew to substantiate Jesus as the Messiah. And he even begins with the section that we dread when we start reading our New Testaments, the genealogies. We've laughed often. This is like the nightmare Sunday school lesson. We'd like you to teach kids Sunday school, and we'd like you to teach from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. What in the world am I? Dodgeball. Dodgeball is the answer. Everybody gets a name, and we play dodgeball. All right? Why are the genealogies here? They're here to prove to us, to outline for us, that the one who has all authority has arrived. The one who is the promised one from old has arrived. He is the seed of David. He is the seed of Abraham. You remember this? He's the one who has come through sinful people. He's the one who has come through unbelievable stories like Ruth and Boaz. Like the son of Jesse, David, the shepherd, who didn't even show up at the let's pick a king party. This is the one. He's here. God did it. He was faithful. Now bow down and worship him. We get to the Sermon on the Mount. And with all of that behind us, it is not difficult to answer the question, why did Jesus teach with this kind of authority? taught like this because he is the authority he's the king of kings and he is the lord of every other lord as we conclude the sermon on the mount and we head into our christmas season it's not enough for us just to be astonished at jesus it's not enough to be astonished at the power of what we see declared in the sermon on the mount We must bow our will and our self-righteous pride and give our lives to Him. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the eternal Creator and Judge. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to write an article for the paper here in town. We have a little corner called The Pastor's Perspective. Maybe some of you saw that. That's what I wrote in the last paragraph of that little article. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, There is good news. Baby Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary. This miraculous birth is the introduction of God's gracious plan of salvation. This Christmas season, Jesus must not be viewed as a cute little baby, a good teacher, an example for humanity, or a great prophet spreading the message from God. The Bible gives no such description, but states that Jesus is eternal God, eternal creator, eternal sustainer of all that is created and the sinless sacrifice for sinners. Only those who have a proper perspective of baby Jesus will have a proper response to his crucifixion, death and resurrection. The proper response will be the recognition of one's sinful condition, rejection of one's own efforts to please God and belief of the truth about Jesus. The call of the Christmas child is crystal clear. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I will pray for you this Christmas, that this Christmas will be one of worshiping Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and the perfect substitute for sinners, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? That's... 
That's, that's the underlying message of Matthew seven twenty nine. He teaches with authority, not like the scribes. He is the authority. So that leaves us with one question at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. One question. One final question that must be answered correctly because eternity is at stake. And that is, how will you respond to the sermon? How will you and I respond to the Sermon on the Mount? It is a crisis point. It's a crossroads point. It is a point of decision because Jesus has clearly outlined the character qualities, the nature of, the demands of, the standard of, the response of, the kingdom. And here we have an offer. All who will follow me, who will come to Christ on his own terms, will be granted forgiveness. So what will our response be? Matthew chapter 12, the context is what is commonly known as the unpardonable sin. Jesus declares this in verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. You cannot claim that you're a follower of Jesus and ascribe his power to Satan is the context. Whoever is with me or not with me is against me. Whoever is against me is not with me. So here's the reality, folks. When we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and every point in the whole study of the Sermon on the Mount, we're left with only two options. Only two ways. It's either narrow or broad. We will either respond with a heart of submission and humility before the King of Kings, or we will respond with a proud rejection of the King of Kings. That's it. Those are the only two options. And so, unbeliever, if you're here this morning, the question is will you give your life away and follow the King? Will you give up everything? Because the cost of discipleship under Jesus Christ is everything. It's a total rejection. It's an absolute departure from my own agenda, from my own righteousness, from my own way, from my own wisdom. I'm leaving it all behind and I'm following exclusively in the path of Christ. Will you repent and believe? Will you turn from your way, follow Christ, believing that his death on the cross is effective as a substitution for sinners and that he has been raised from the dead and has victory over death, providing eternal life. That is your that is your only reasonable response to the sermon. Anything else is utter folly. Kingdom citizens this morning, how will you respond to the sermon? How will I respond to the sermon? The only reasonable response is for us to exalt Christ on the throne of our lives every single day. To again confess every morning that the mercies are new and sufficient and that Christ is the authority. I do not live for myself. I I, I get up every morning and we must put Christ on the throne of our lives. We must set our affections on him, our attention on him. Our renewing of our mind with his truth, his word, dependent upon his spirit who is comforting us until he returns. Our agenda must be set aside. We must exalt him and keep exalting him to his rightful place. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is the basis of our salvation and it is the basis of our growth. The supremacy of Christ must be our 
response. We're already worshiping him, him as king. Let's worship him better as king. Let's worship him more consistently as king. Let's see him more accurately. Let's bow before him more readily. Because he is the one who teaches with all authority. Not to be like the scribes, but my dear brother in the faith, Don Carson, says this. That's not for you to believe or not believe what has been said. Here's Carson's comment. May God in his mercy grant that we will not stop at mere amazement. But press on to that deeply rooted commitment which sings, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. May God in his mercy grant that we will not stop at mere amazement, but press on to a deeply rooted Commitment to the supremacy of Jesus Christ.